So for those of you just joining us, uh, I'm Rita McGrath, and my guest this week is my friend, colleague, raconteur, occasional uh, debate <laughs> debate partner, uh, Roger Martin. Uh, and uh, he is um, very famous as a consultant, as an author, um, uh, ran the Monitor Group for a long time, did the Rotman Institute for Prosperity, uh, and has been a real voice for creating great strategies in a more just and uh, egalitarian world. So I think uh, is I hope that captures uh, some of what you've been working on. That that's a that's a nice intro. I, I, <laughs> I no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. So um, before we get to the book, which I definitely want to talk about, I'd love I'd love to get your reflections on sort of where strategy is today, because I think it's had a long and and uh, a winding road. You know, from the early early days. You know, when we really talked about things like. Um, the Boston consulting matrix and, you know, order of entry and that kind of thing. And I just love, you know, you've watched it all these years and I'd love to get your yeah. reflections on sort of that journey and where you think we are now with it. Well, I, I hate to, <laughs> I hate to start a little bit on, on, on a, a, a dour note, but I, I'm kind of worried about the modern practice of strategy. Mm -hmm. I think it's gone in a couple of directions that I'm not nuts about since since, if you will, the early days. I mean, the, the way I think about strategy is it really started as a discipline or a practice in 1963 with the foundation of BCG by the great legendary late Bruce Henderson, um, who, who really made it, uh, made it a discipline, essentially brought it over from the world of the military, because we've always had military strategy from Sun Tzu, you know, uh, uh, on, on down, but, uh, but brought it to, to business. And, and BCG was a, uh, a, a great uh, creation. It, it started the field. Um, McKinsey, which had been around since 1920, but didn't do strategy because there was no such thing as, 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 as strategy, watched BCG and said, oh my God, they will sort of decapitate us. They'll talk to the CEOs and we'll talk to the next level and got into strategy. Bain and Company spun off in uh, BCG in 1973. And so you had three, three firms. Monitor came along in 1983. But in that period of 60s, 70s, and 80s, the so-called strategy consulting firms were strategy consulting firms. They did mainly strategy, not, not McKinsey because they did gigantic other practice as well, but they, were, they, they had a very big strategy practice. Since then, um, other things have gotten way bigger and more important than strategy. So you might sell a $1 million, $2 million, $5 million strategy study, but, but if you slamming together two Dow Jones 30 companies, your post-integration merger project will be $200 million, uh, or your Salesforce reorganization will be $100, $100 million, uh, or, or your sort of, you know, kind of digital implementation will be you know, $500 million. And so strategy, in my view, has become a tiny practice of what used to be the strategy firms. Mm -hmm. So it just isn't a, it isn't a focus uh, anymore. Other things, and I'm not blaming them. They're, 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 you know, kind of serving their clients and their clients want to want these other things other than, other than strategy. So there are fewer people. And I think there are fewer leading edge ideas coming out of the strategy, <clears throat> the so-called strategy firms than they're, mm -hmm. than they're used to. And then in the strategy academy, and I, again, you're going to make me make enemies here, but I, I, I'm not nuts about the direction that it's that it's gone. Um, and I think you know 
you and I are in some sense on the fringes of the strategy academy where we're more practitioners, kind of writers, outside oriented people. But as you would know, if you're inside the strategy world and you're trying to get tenure in strategy now, you have to show fealty to the resource-based view of the firm or you have no chance. Right. We've 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 con we've we've consolidated on one view of strategy and I hate to say it, but very, very few companies. I don't know if you've met met companies that actually utilize the resource based view of the firm uh, kind of work. They use your stuff. They use my stuff. They use lots of other people's, even my stuff. Uh, uh, but I don't see them using that. So I, I'm I think the strategy faculty has gone in a direction that isn't as friendly and helpful to the to uh, companies. Uh, and the strategy consulting firms have spent their time on other things so that there is, I think, a, a gap in the practice of strategy, the practical practice of strategy of the sort that you'd be interested in, of, of which, you know, Peter Drucker would have been interested in, I'm in, in, interested in. And so I don't feel awesome about the state of strategy in, in, the, in the world these days. And is that too dour? What do you think, uh, Rita? Um, uh uh, I think we have a fragmentation of approaches. Mm -hmm. um, I do think one of the big problems with the academy, and actually I had a really long conversation with C.K. Prabhalad about this many years ago. And he Did said, you? Yeah. yeah, and he said um, a couple of interesting things. He said, the first thing is when I'm writing for the strategy academic community, or even maybe the Harvard Business Review, they all want to know like what the body of evidence is from the past that I would be drawing my conclusions from. And he said, and you know, CK was brilliant at this, right? He said, uh, I wanna know what's happening in the future. I wanna be thinking about the future. So when I think about the ideas that I'm really interested in right now, which is the shift in value from products and services to interactions and networks. Um, when we think about the kinds of stuff you write about in the book, and I do wanna to get to the book, yeah. um, but the, the, the idea of looking at systemic issues, right? I mean, the, the strategy academics, the resource-based view or not, you know, they, they break things down into pieces. And then they say, we've got a, you know, a statistically significant correlation between this piece and that piece. Because yeah, it's very hard to model the whole. I mean, there are some clever approaches yes. to, to beginning to do that. But I think this sort of notion of really understanding the behavior of the system. And uh, you may not know this, Roger, but I my PhD was from Russ Acoff Social System Sciences at the, PhD, at the Wharton School. Dodge. <laughs> A great man, such a great man. Absolutely. And I, and I never met him. And sadly, Rita, uh, somebody else who was a, a, a protege of, of his and knew me said, you and Russ would really get along. You should meet him. And so I said, sure, if he's game, you know, he's a god, I'll, 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 I'll meet him. And we arranged a meeting about three months hence, and he passed away uh, about a month before it. So I never, oh. I never had the chance to, uh -oh. uh, to uh, uh, meet him. Um, uh, I corresponded a little bit in setting up in setting up the the meeting, but but anyway, which which was which was a good life lesson. If you want, if something's important, uh, why don't you just like do it now? Do not, it now, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but the so whole future thing. If I can say, if I can just build on this, uh, I mean, because I, I I think we're completely sympathetical on this, um, and I and and um, uh, and I wrote an HBR article on on this, right? Aristotle. Um, who really invented the the scientific approach that all of these these tenure stream academics use? 
convent what I call conventional so, uh, uh, social sciences research uh, methodologies. I mean, the father of that was Aristotle, uh, who originally said 2,400 years ago, uh, here's how you determine the cause uh, of, of a given effect. Right. Uh, and, and that's analytica posteriora, maybe the most important book written uh, in the history of science. But he warned, that very same gentleman warned, he said, by the way, this is for the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. Right. So, so this is the part of the world where if I let go of this pen, it falls. It fell last week, it fell 100 years ago, it fell 1,000 years ago, and it's going to fall 1,000 years uh, from now. And he said this sort of an anal analyzing data from the past is really valuable in that part of the world because it's representative of what will happen in the, f in the future. But the father of science said, by the way, there's another uh, part of the world. That's the part of the world where things can be other than they are. Right. Mm -hmm. So I used to illustrate this. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if it's more than uh, kind of one arm's length away from you. Right. You get the hives. Right. Well, in, in 1998, that wasn't the case because there was no such thing as a smartphone. The first one was the Blackberry in 1999. Um, that's that's illustrative of the part of the world where things can be different than they are. Mm -hmm. And Aristotle said incredibly clearly, do not use my method in that part of the world. Right. Why? It's because data from the past is what? Not representative of, of data that may be created in, in, the, in the future. And he said, quite lyrically, I think, uh, the job of human beings in that part of the world is be the cause of the, the new effect. And so that's, in some sense, what you try to do, I think, in your work, uh, Rita, is, is try to cause things to happen and, and, and encourage you, encourage companies to cause things to happen that haven't happened before. And because they haven't happened before, there is no data to support the notion that it, it will happen, right? Uh, and what Aristotle said, in that part of the world, your job being rigorous is imagining possibilities mm -hmm. and choosing the one for which the most compelling argument can be made, mm -hmm. not for which there's the most data, because he was smart enough to say, there won't be any data. Right. There won't be any direct data, any statistically significant data. But it doesn't mean that there won't be an argument that you can make mm -hmm. that says this is worth trying. Right. Uh, right. And we have we have a too little of that, and b we are teaching our MBA students that all decisions must be data-based. Yeah. You're some kind of corporate floozy if you make decisions that aren't based on data. Mm -hmm. That's against what the father of data analytics 2,400 years ago was crystal clear on. Absolutely. So I wanna connect this to one of the pieces of work of yours that I just love, which is the whole story of P&G, the invention of Mastique, and you walk, I mean, I remember some months ago, I watched a presentation where you walked people through the, let before we get into the number crunching and the data and the expensive stuff, right? Let's use our imaginations first. And I'd love it if you wouldn't mind telling that story just briefly about, how, how you guys conceived of it, thought of it, and then that sort of thought experiment part before you even get to the, let's let's hire the consultants and do all this money. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, we, we did uh, research, but much more qualitative uh, kind of research just to say, what, you know, kind of what's going on here and why is Olay uh, stuck at a flat, 
750 million and sort of a billion dollars and up are the brands that, that make sense. Why, why, what is it, what is it about, uh, about uh, uh, women uh, uh, that put us in that position, maybe seventh to 10th biggest brand, which is on P and G like, and, and, and what we, and what we d discovered um, is that they had this love hate relationship with the prestige channel right? The first floor of Nordstrom's or, or, uh, or, or oh, those guys that come chasing after you with the perfume. <laughs> Don't that you want to try this? Don't you want to try this? <laughs> that, and, and, and that, by the way, you are not unlike the, 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 which is that the, they love the fact that it's high quality and, and that it's always in stock and, and like they hate the pushy sales techniques and they hate the fact as I, I'm sure you do as a very busy woman that, that they have to make an extra trip they're in the mass channels kind of on a, on a weekly basis just getting the stuff they normally get so it's uh, it's handier so we just we discovered that and we discovered that women below 40 of the age of 50 didn't feel that the products were were targeted uh, for them and well, that was the famous period of the oil of old lady <laughs> yes oil of old lady exactly but also also you know that they that they didn't really see uh, see anybody else particularly uh, uh, serving them well or targeting them or well or even speaking speaking uh, to them and so and so we we imagine well what what is it possible to create something that has a bunch of the good aspects of prestige uh, but is delivered in in uh, in mass and targeted not at 50 plus a, a segment with sort of one benefit, sort of minimizing kind of wrinkling of the of the of the skin, but but a, a broader array of, of 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 features, and that's where we imagine the 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 mastige uh, idea. And I say we, I, it was mainly mainly great Procter and Gamble uh, uh, people, Jenna Drosis and uh, Susan Arnold and and, and uh, Ag Ag Lafley. Um, but it's then and only then when you've got a, when, when you've got an idea a sort of that here's how we could appeal to to uh, to those women women here's what it would have to look like here's what we would have to do with the 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 trade channel that you then go and do that really heavy lifting and the more and the more quantitative research but as the great ag lafley always said he says the analysis can never be more than an aid to my judgment that, right and he and he is, and you know, you know, I'm, I'm sure it, he is like a numbers junkie. Like he's, he's an analytical wizard, but even the analytical wizard says it, the best it can ever be is an aid to, uh, aid to my uh, judgment. And, and in the end, right, he, he made, he pulled the trigger on that without having proof that it would work, but he'd worked through a bunch of things. We, we had target convinced to, to uh, to try to try this to set up a set up a prestige like feeling in 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 that aisle so so you can sort of peel away things that you can you know, kind, of, kind of knock off off the list but you know it was a new a new thing that we couldn't be certain that that the women who walked into uh, into that target aisle would say i will pay four times, it was 1899 price point and instead of uh, 499 price point, uh, mm -hmm. what I was paying uh, before. before. Yeah. 
fascinating. And what I love about it is the iterative nature of, of the process that you use. So I do want to get to the book. I want to make sure, because sure. I can talk to you all day. I mean, you know. Uh, uh, um, and so the book is When More Is Not Better. And as you can see, I've been spending some real oh quality time with it. Yeah, I, re I really enjoyed it. And okay. I think the first thing that really hit me over the head about the book was your observation that in the US anyway, we've had this interesting combination of democracy and capitalism. And if the mass of people do not feel that capitalism is working for them, that if we actually do have a democracy, they'll vote for something else. Yeah. And I think the core theme of the book is that things that should be treated as systems and where we need to really see the whole system in balance uh, have been distorted by the need to optimize parts of these systems. And I think the pandemic, your timing could not be better. I mean, the pandemic has made this obvious to the ordinary person, right? Yeah. Uh, so maybe just tell us the story of the book and, and what are some of the things you hope people will take away from it? Sure. Well, well, that is, I mean, that's a good summary and an unsurprising one from a Russell Acuff, uh, <laughs> a stu student in the, in that, that, that is a core, core, uh, core finding of the book really that, that without necessarily saying so we've treated the economy and even the political economy as a big complicated machine like an automobile, right? And so an automobile is a big complicated machine. There's, there's the powertrain, there's the braking system, there's a heating, ventilating, air conditioning, there's the safety, safety uh, system, all of these systems. And to deal with the complexity uh, or the complicatedness of that, we break it into those, those disciplines and have somebody say, well, do, do a powertrain and it should have these uh, attributes, do braking uh, system, it should have these attributes. And we add it up. And if it's a complicated uh, uh, system, you can kind of figure it out well enough to add it up and it's a, it's a car. Um, the economy is a complex system uh, where cause and effect aren't so clear. It's not like if you press on that pedal called the gas pedal, it'll go faster. If you press on that pedal, it might, but it might careen out of control. It might go sideways. Um, it's and it's and it's a it's a system where you just can't tease those things apart for a while and then and then put them together. You are operating on the whole, but maybe even most importantly, it's adaptive, right? A car is not adaptive. A machine is is, is not adaptive. It, you know, it it doesn't say, "Wow, uh, Rita kind of jams on the gas uh, kind of really quickly uh, 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 when when she, when she starts going." I should adapt to that, and when she pushes hard, I'll just open the carburetor a little, a little bit. They don't. That's they don't. They don't adapt in that way. And Roger doesn't, and so I'll just behave. My carburetor will behave differently when Roger's driving. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so, but in in uh, in a, an adaptive system, whatever rules are in place, the creatures in it adapt to it. It's just like a tree, right? If you're growing behind a big tree, you're going to kind of grow sideways to adapt to the fact that you still you still need uh, uh, need light. Or you know, if if uh, the Clinton administration says we're going to stop CEO compensation from rising by making only the first $1 million of compensation deductible for corporate income tax purposes. They don't just say, oh, okay, well, we will put the brakes on CEO compensation. They say, hey, now here's an idea. Why don't we give them stock options instead? Uh, and they are not, not taxable in kind of any way to them or anybody else. And sure enough, your clever methodology for reducing uh, uh, CEO compensation or at least at least flattening it ends up with 
CEO compensation being 10 times as high 10, 10 years later. That's adaptation. So what, so what we have is a system that we're treating like a machine. It's more like a natural uh, system. And by treating it like a machine, we have taken sort of the rules of machines, which is keep pushing and pushing for ultimate efficiency. Let's make that car run as efficiently as, as, as possible. More efficiency is always better. And we've put pressure on. So in, in, in our system, we say, well, let's put more pressure on it. Let's open up, uh, open up markets to international trade. Let's deregulate. Uh, let's encourage, encourage kind of mergers to get, to get kind of big and supposedly more efficient in the, in the capital markets. And all of that stuff has inadvertently taken that natural system and caused it to produce a set of outcomes that we never expected. Right. The, the general conception of the economy really is, is that the, the outcomes are going to be largely normally distributed, bell-shaped, a mm -hmm. big middle class. We all know with a big, big middle class, some rich people, a few rich people, a few poor people. And if we keep pursuing efficiency, productivity will rise and that distribution will march to the right to, to higher and higher incomes. Uh, what we didn't realize that in, in complex adaptive systems, especially if you start pushing harder and harder, putting more and more pressure on them, and if the, if the connection between things in, in that, uh, the, there's a ease of connection, it turns into a Pareto distribution, the 80-20 distribution that Wilfredo Pareto first observed where he noted that 20% of Italian families own 80% of the land at the end of the, at the, end of the 19th uh, uh, century. That's, that's what we're getting, uh, uh, Rita. We are getting something that look, is looking more Pareto every day, which means that most observations, and let's use family income as the object are being pushed to the left, to the low end. And then a very few observations, the 1% are getting more and more so that when we have a dollar of economic growth in the American economy, now that dollar of growth is most likely to head into the pockets of somebody in the 99.999th percentile. 40 years ago, it was actually most likely to end up in the pockets of somebody at the fifth percentile, which I think probably you and I could agree, you kind of want that, right? You know, that's just a pretty much inherently good thing. The people who need an incremental dollar most are most likely to get it. The people who need it least are least likely uh, uh, to get it. Now we've switched. The people who need it most are least likely to get it. The people who need it least are most likely to get it. And that's, that's in a nutshell, my worry in, uh, as stated in the book that, that because this isn't totalitarian capitalism of the sort we now are getting increasingly in China, right? That's an increasingly capitalist uh, country and it's, it's uh, totalitarian. Um, uh, if we want democratic capitalism, 50, 1% of people have to say, this is working for me. Mm -hmm. And it's just, and it's just not right now. A, 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 in fact, ever since 1976, the median family income can be expected to grow uh, to double every 100 years. Prior to that, it was doubling every 30 years. So you could actually sit at the kitchen table as a median family and, and be able to look at your kids and say, you know, when they're my age, they're, they'll have double the real income I'll have. And I think, 
I think any reasonable family at the median could say, that's pretty, that, that's pretty good. That works. That works. That works. Right. But if, but if they were saying, you know, my children's 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 children will, will be, uh, uh, have twice the, twice the income we have, it's sort of like, you know, kind of blah, right. That, that sounds like, that sounds like a century from now. <laughs> well, that's because it is <laughs> right. And that's just a long, long uh, time. So that's, so that's, that's the, the, the concern in the, in, in, the, in the book that we inadvertently, I'm not blaming this on anybody. Nobody, I don't think in America had the plan that said we are going to accidentally do a bunch of things that is going to create a, a, a situation in which very, very, very few people are benefiting from economic uh, growth. We need everybody to work on economic growth for the benefit of few. Nobody. I, I, know, I, don't know if, I don't know if you've met anybody like that. I don't, I don't know anybody that's done that. I think it's inadvertently uh, happened. Yeah, I mean, I guess where I come down on that, and I've been following the work of Bill Lazonic on things. Oh, like yeah, stock I love Bill. I love Bill. Yeah, and, he's terrific. Um, on, on things like stock buybacks. Yeah. Um, look at the argument made by the people at Patriotic Millionaires, Just Capital. Um, what they're basically saying yeah. is, and I think this does relate to your argument, which is, millions of narrowly shaped incentivized decisions. So just as a specific example, I can take a position as an activist investor. I own a tiny share of a company's total stock. I have had no relationship with the company ever. Yeah. I have not contributed to what it is. I've not built it up. I've not done anything. But because of the way our financial system structured, uh, I can have this completely disproportionate effect on senior leadership decisions um, and, and often lead to outcomes that are in the long run quite devastating. So the specific one I lived with um, because I was working with them at the time was the activist that came into DuPont. Oh, really? You were, you were, yeah. He was involved with DuPont at the time. And, you know, okay. Ellen Coleman, who I think is one of the best leaders I've ever met, actually yeah. won. She won the activist argument. Yeah. Um, her board sided with her. The shareholders were on her side, the vast majority of them, not the activists, obviously. Um, and yet, and yet, it had so ripped apart that management structure, their, their focus, their ability to do things. She ended up basically retiring um, yeah. without ever being able to really fulfill her vision for the company because of this sort of bizarre interruption from the financial markets. And to me, that's just one example where at a, at a micro level, if you're allowed to as an activist, you know, this thing might pay off for you in the short term and da da da. And yet we kind of allow that. And so one of the things I struggle with is, is what kind of regulatory regime um, can help. And I think one of the great arguments you make in the book is the notion of friction. Yes. Yes, well, and, and, and a form of friction, and, and on that one, you know, I, I have, I have you know, one that's directly one of the I have 18 recommendations mm -hmm. uh, in, in the book, and one is on, on uh, kind of time-based voting rights. So uh, I, I, would, I would say in, in, right, in, that, that you should give a, any shareholder one extra vote per day they own the stock up to 4,000 days, so a little over 10, 10 years. Um, and so literally, if you were a long-term holder of, of DuPont and you, you know, you bought a, sh uh, a share, you'd vote 4,000 shares uh, when that, that activist investor uh, uh, came along. Uh, and, and that would make it very hard. And so if the activist investor approached you to buy your share, 
they they would buy it and then they know have it for one day and it would be worth one share. And so anybody who's invested longer term has a dramatically uh, higher stake and and like four thousand times as high a stake essentially as that activist. And 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 it and again and any recommendation that makes it in the book has to have already been done somewhere. And the French have done this. If you're a long-term shareholder, you get two shares, two votes for 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 everyone. Uh, the Flange Act, and and uh, and I just say that's not nearly uh, nearly a lot uh, enough because uh, you know I yeah I I think the you know, the uh, activist investors are the hyenas of the modern uh, uh, economy. They hunt in packs uh, and they destroy good good uh, good things. But the system uh, kind of works, uh, you know, totally to to make it uh, to make it easy uh, for them to do their thing. I just make it hard. And again, people say, "Oh, well, that will entrench uh, uh, management." You know, kind of. No, it won't. Why is it? Why would it? Why would Rita McGrath be be particularly kind of? Silly about about management and trusting management just because she's she's been a shareholder for ten for for ten years. If they don't do a good job, you'll sell that you'll you'll sell that share anyway. It, 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 the arguments against it are just are are, are are vacuous. When I when I when I push back on them, they're they're like, well, well, it's radical. Yeah, well, <laughs> so are so so has been the arrival of of, of hedge funds. The other thing I the other thing I would I would uh, forbid. Uh, is uh, is uh, lending of stocks by pension funds. Mm-hmm. So so essentially, uh, uh, the lending of stocks is necessary for you to short a stock. Uh, and we have between a four trillion dollar and eight trillion dollar short on the world's capital markets at any given time, equity markets at at any given time. Ninety percent of the shares that are lent come from pension funds. Pension funds are interested in one thing only, or should be interested in one thing only, having their value of their portfolios as high as possible over a longer, longest period of time possible to pay off the, the, the pensioners. And they're facilitating a giant short. And it's even worse than a giant short because those short positions come on and off and just jerk around, uh, around stock prices. And... 80% of, of the large pension funds in the US are government monopoly pension funds, right? So if you're a Texas teacher, you don't have a choice of where you put your money, your pension or who holds your pension money, Texas teachers does. So what we have is a system where governments force people to put, put, put their pension in the hands of a monopoly provider, a monopsonist provider, who then goes and lends uh, shares to nasty hedge fund people to short and jerk around short stocks and jerk them around. Why, 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 you know, why, why do we, why do we allow that? Uh, it, it makes, it makes kind of no sense uh, whatsoever. So I think there are things we can do uh, in the capital markets uh, to, to at least ameliorate the, the problems. And, and that this Rita is, is an important point in the book, which is, this this system worked quite well for 200 years, right? Um, and so it's not that the system itself is is really problematic. It's just we pushed it too far. 
That's why it's when more is not better, right? More ice cream is better for quite some time until, <laughs> until you're eating so much ice cream that you get fat and, 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 and sick, but ice cream, eating ice cream is not a bad thing. Right. So well, it's not a bad thing unless you, you know, that's your COVID coping mechanism. <laughs> yes, that is true. That is true. So there's a bunch of these things. We just have to dial it back. And, and I think, and I think we will have, we will have succeeded in a, in a, in a major way. We don't have to make activist hedge funds go away. We don't have to make hedge funds go, go away. We have to just take away their ability to cause kind of single-minded death and destruction, which mm -hmm. is. Yeah, and I mean, I thought I thought your comment about frictions really throughout the the um, book was was very very interesting. Um, one of the things that I'm particularly passionate about, and I know you are as well, is uh, Zainab Tan's work on good jobs and her empirical demonstration. And this is also there are many scholars who have looked at this, like Jeff Pfeffer, for example. Yes, that you can provide good jobs, decent benefits, a decent life for people, uh, and not incur these downsides. And her point is, we just look at employees as unit of cost, and that they're yes. not that, you know, and Gary Hamill makes this point as well, which is human beings are incredibly ingenious creatures. Yeah. And if you let them, you know, they can improve your revenue, they can improve your customer service, they can make you a, a, you know, a forever company. Um, but if you treat them like, you know, poorly performing robots and reward them accordingly, you're not going to get any of those benefits. Yes. Because, because that, you know, absolutely right. And that, and that, that is part, as you know, the point in the book about proxies. Uh, when you say my proxy for being efficient with my employees is having the lowest possible wage, right? That I can get away with, right? It's just, it's just a terrible, a terrible proxy because it drives you to making them, as you say, uh, a, a, a poorly performing uh, robot. Right. If you if you try to make a human into a robot, they'll do a crappy job. Mm -hmm. If you if you uh, uh, take a human and and give them the opportunity to create and make things happen, it's it's marvelous. And 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 I you, you and I are, are singing from the same songbook on Zainab. I I've told her many times that uh, for her generation, she's she's a much younger than than me at least. Um, for her generation, she she will end up being one of the most ten most influential. Uh, business academics on the planet. Uh, I, I think she's, she's uh, uh, now she doesn't care much about that. She cares about making the, the jobs of, of, of workers. I mean, as you know, I'm chair of the Good Jobs Institute. She's the, pre the president and the goal is to convert 10 million US jobs from bad jobs to good jobs. That's the, that's the goal of the Good jobs. Uh, there are, and there are some, some really early good signs. So there was just a study that came out this week looking at people who did not have college degrees, but could improve their incomes by, I think the phrase was 70%, by moving into jobs that had previously been ring fenced only for people that hold degrees. And uh, another big hobby horse of mine. Like I think, I think the, the, the requirement of a BA for so many jobs simply serves the recruiting entities needs yes. <laughs> it doesn't really it doesn't serve the needs of the people and it doesn't serve the needs of the company yeah. and on the one hand i hear all these senior people screaming about i can't find talented people and on the other hand there are all these incredibly talented people and all that's in between them is this degree yes. <laughs> it's crazy. Yes. yes yes and 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 silly proxy screens right the proxy for you being smart is you have a va uh no uh not so and there's where costco again costco is just such a brilliant company 
right? Virtually all their senior management started on the shop floor. Mm -hmm. Many of them are, don't have advanced uh, education, although they do a, a great job of sending back their, their, uh, their terrific uh, uh, previously undereducated uh, managers to get, to get more, uh, more education. But yeah, it, human ingenuity, I mean, Gary, Gary is, is typically way more right than wrong, right? Uh, <laughs> is, you know, human ingenuity is, is, uh, uh, is an incredibly powerful uh, uh, force. Um, and it is, it is not, unfortunately, it's not that hard to crush, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I think all you have to do is start sending signals. You don't want any of that ingenuity around here. We want you to do your job. It's like the old Henry Ford quote, right? right. You know, I, 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 I want a pair of hands and, and the damn things uh, come with a mind attached, right? Uh, like, I, you know, I, 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 you know, Henry Ford was famous for like verbalizing what he, what he had in mind, but I think a, a hell of a lot of other executives would, would, would say the, would say the, the, the same thing. And this is also where, if you want bugaboos of mine, this is, uh, you know, the fields and, and I, my, I have some arguments with my dear friend, Adam Grant on this, uh, who hosts every year a conference on people analytics. Like if I if I were a dictator, I would ban people analytics, right? Right? Because because what what is what you know if you if you just go back to Aristotle and say what is people analytics? What's the fundamental presumption of people analytics? That you can tell everything about the future of a person from analyzing their past, mm -hmm. right? So if this is what if this is what Rita does on on the job and has for the past five years, that will always be Rita. Not asking the question, well, in what way could Rita be different, better? Maybe we could say, Rita, why don't you figure out how to serve uh, customers better? Or, 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 or Rita, is the assortment that we have, if this is retail, if the assortment we have based on your interaction with customers, is it the assortment you'd pick or would you pick something else? But if you're into people analytics, that is unthinkable. You would never, there would be no, no justification for ever asking Rita that, uh, those questions because uh, data analytics would say she's never answered such a question in the past. So we can assume safely that she would be incapable of answering it in the future, which of course is just ludicrous on its face, but that's, that's what, that's what it would say. So. So a couple of questions in from the chat. One is, um, how do you teach people to think about complex adaptive systems um, in, a, in a richer way? And another is um, that, that how do we help innovation, um, uh, the innovation community tackle some of these challenges? Sure. Well, I mean, I think the good news on complex adaptive systems, and here, I mean, here again, I, I, I say I will only make recommendations that are, that somebody's done already and and oh yeah and, and I, I should mention yeah. that about the book by the way but yeah. one of the things i really liked was first of all you devote a big portion of the book to solutions which is unusual usually we have you know 273 pages of chest reading about how awful things are and then 10 pages it's like the, all those academic papers which is you know yeah. suggestions for future research somebody should solve this <laughs> right you know at the end wouldn't I that be awesome? <laughs> yeah 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 so uh so mit like, you know, the father, Jay Forster, father of system dynamics, now John, the great John Sturman, they teach uh, people system dynamics. It's, it is just utterly teachable and it is, it is mainly untaught, right? Uh, and so, so I, I actually think among various things in the book, that would be one of the easier things to do, but it's just not on 
it's not on curricula. Um, you know, and, you know, I try to do a whole lot of things at the Rotman School to, ch to, to change and improve the, the, uh, the curriculum. And we did have for a couple of years, we actually, we actually uh, utilized John, the, the John Sturman, the, the, the Jay Forrester chairholder at MIT Sloan uh, to help us design it. But, but there isn't, in business education, there is not a field of, of complex adaptive systems. And so, so it, well, it just, it just arguably of, I belonged to one that, that yeah. was trying, right. And it imploded over, over the course of really? the Did you? Yeah. It was in the department. Um, it got folded back into, I think operations or management and, uh, yeah. and it no longer exists. Um, but there, there is a hearty, there's a whole cohort of us graduates out there that can keep in touch now and again. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, so that, so you had an, an interesting, I should come and talk to you. You had the same experience I did. So I worked hard to get something into the program, but it just, it just, you, you know, it, and, and uh, people have to be in the bowels of a business school like you or I to under, understand it. I mean, everything is driven around what their fellow professors want to write about in the academic journals. And if you're doing something that doesn't doesn't, you know, isn't consistent with that, you know, not, and, you know, design is one of the, one of the big things. Students have an insatiable desire for design, design thinking uh, at, at business schools, insatiable. But design is about holes. Yeah. You can't and, design the foot of a chair and have it be in complete ignorance with the rest of the chair. I mean, you, you can't. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but even though they want it and companies want to recruit people who are MBAs who have a, a design sense, it is hard as hell to get design going in in uh, business school. Again, I did it. I did it while I was at the at the at the Rotman School, and when I left at dean, most of it most of it got shut down. Now, now, now the students are screaming so, sufficiently loud that they're they're attempting to ramp it back up. But uh, there is just a, there is just a fundamental mismatch between what is going on in business schools today and what is needed for the for the future. Well, and one of the more interesting elements to me that, and we're seeing it now, we're absolutely seeing it now, is the schools that are really innovating. And I'm thinking here of Arizona State, uh, Southern New Hampshire University, Western Governors. Um, they're able to, in way, some ways, to escape those constraints because they're yeah. a little bit non-conventional players. And when I think of the individuals that are really thinking about these future-oriented things, it tends to be people um, who are... You know, I mean, I'll use myself as an example, yourself as an example, you know, not not in that mold perfectly, right? We're, we're yep. a little in between disciplines. I mean, even Michael Porter was in between disciplines in a yes. way. Yes. Um, you know, and so I think it's it's having that sort of in-between space that lets you see right, left, and center what um what, what others don't don't. And I mean, yep. if I go back to the big consulting firms, and again, no disrespect to them, but they're financial model is all around what is, you know? And so my incentive to propose something that that's going to radically change that model is probably not at the top of my list. Yes. No. And, and as they get, as they've gotten to be gigantic firms, right. So I, I you know, it's hard to tell because he's private, but I think last estimate I saw was like an $8 billion uh, firm. Um, they need to be fed by product revenue. Mm -hmm. So, post-merger integration is a product, you know, it's very, it's very, you know, kind of defined, you, you must, you, you must create 19 task forces. They each need a, a mandate. This should be the composition of them. This should be the work plan for them. That's very productized, uh, uh, right. As a, as opposed to sort of 
hey, can, can you come in and help create the future for us? That, that's, that, that may, and I'm, I'm sure they do studies of that, of that sort, but that does, not, that does not feed the pyramid, the gigantic $8 billion uh, a pyramid. That's a, that's a, that's a side, a side uh, thing. So, so sort of the, how to help somebody conceptualize and invent a future that does not now exist. Is uh, is not is not something that they're gonna they're gonna spend a whole lot of time and energy on on developing. Right. When well, you know, I have a lot of friends who are in the sort of think tank parts of those big firms. Oh yes. It's a lonely life. <laughs> oh know, really? A really lonely life. <laughs> um, but you know, David Meister years ago talked about the the shape of professional service firms, and it's always informed how I think about them. Which he says, you know, you've got the the firms that are basically procedures, right? Come in and put in payroll come in and put in SAP or come in and do a merge, you know, well understood problem, well-defined. Um, and you, your pyramids there can be like this. So you make boatloads of money. Then yes. you have the gray hair things, which is trust me, I've been through this before, you won't go wrong, you know, and you take yep. the binder off the shelf and maybe 20% of it's customized and the rest is, yeah, you've been through it before. And then the hardest thing I think to do and to pay for is the brains work, right? It's the, <laughs> Roger, here's a really interesting problem. <laughs> And let me let me have you think about that problem. So things like tax rates, right? I mean, in the book, you talk about things like tax rates. How do we get people open to even discussing those things? You know, yeah. um, and what I'm what I'm intrigued by with tax rates um, is is that's a clear case to me of zero sum thinking, right? So if my tax rate goes from ninety percent to thirty percent, I'm going to be better off. Well, only if you assume the pot of income you're addressing is static. Right. Whereas yeah. the lot of income you're addressing is growing. Guess what? You might be better off with a ninety percent tax rate. And people don't think that way. No, no, I, no. You're right. It's uh, um, and again, I, I I think people actually think that way in their regular life. Like one of the things I've been wor I'm working on, and I want and I want to write about. That's so why I'll I'll I'll, I'll, um, I'll market test it with you, Rita. Okay. Uh, <laughs> is is um, is Inhuman versus human system, not inhumane, inhuman. So I think we, whenever we talk ourselves into a business kind of system or principle that is inconsistent with how as human beings, when we interact uh, works, we create a problem. So, so you know, uh, Milton Friedman came up with uh, the business of business is business. Nineteen seventy, uh, uh, New York Times Magazine article that was built on by Mike Jensen, who talked about the absolute uh, importance of a singular corporate objective uh, function. Uh, with, with, with yes, with, but but the the key argument was unless you have a singular objective function, you won't know how to make decisions and, and confusion will reign. Okay, so, so I, I'm increasingly thinking that you should always test those against, is that how human beings actually work? Because if it's inhuman, right, then you're trying to jam human beings into a system that is inconsistent with their humanity and bad things will happen, was, it would be my argument. So, so I'd ask Rita, Rita, is that how you run your, your life? You have a single objective function. You want to pursue your career and husband, children, you know, they're secondary because I have a, a single objective function. Mm -hmm. right? And the answer is like, 
come on, Roger, obviously not. Rita, probably, I suspect, uh, though you can tell me otherwise, probably have had to struggle all your life through making decisions of balancing my career, my family and everything. And you just live with that and say, oh, sometimes I go too much this way and sometimes I go too much this way. Oh, always. always. Yeah, always. right. And, and, and then add on top of that the guilt, right? So <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> If I'm the world's best cookie baking mother on Tuesday and I'm the world's hardest charging career woman on Wednesday, I've got this like complete cognitive dissonance. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, so uh, Rita as a human being is used to having multiple conflicting goals, which she trades off and thinks about every day and tries to find clever ways of doing, uh, of, of doing both. And so then if we say, Oh no, but in a corporation, you can't do that. You have to have a single objective uh, uh, function. What I'm increasingly seeing is whenever we do that, bad things happen because humans can't and won't stop being human entirely. And so it'll strike them as, as odd, off-putting. You know, it's like, you know, again, uh, you know, if, uh, do, you, do you take friends that you've had for 10 years that have been good friends for 10 years and just say, I have too many friends. So, so I'm doing a, a riff on friends and getting rid of 15% of my friends. And I just phone them up and say, uh, you're in the 15% that I'm just letting go. No, like, no, human beings don't do that. We do that in corporations. So, so I want to write something on, on whenever we have a theory in business that we use to guide our, our decisions, we should test it against, is that how human beings work? And the farther it is from how human beings work, the more uh, collateral damage it will, it will acquire, the more unintended consequences it will produce and eventually, and it'll eventually, you know, kind of go to hell in handbasket, which, you know, 50 years after the Milton Friedman article, I would argue that that theory is largely in tatters. Uh, it hasn't, it's got another probably 10 years to run because these things take a long time to flush out of the system, but it's largely in, ta- in tatters. And, and what I'm saying is, I don't think this is a 2020 hindsight thing. I think at the time, if we would have had that judgment, if we'd have made that judgment, is this human or inhuman? oh, it's inhuman. Why don't we try and accomplish the same goal with a human system that's consistent with, with, uh, with how people interact? Should I they like write this? I like should that. I, I, this? I think you should. So I'll give you a little more local flavor on the Milton Friedman thing. So what prompted the Milton Friedman thing, and this is something Bill Lazonic writes about, was a movement by community members, um, including some very famous people, uh, to put two community members on GM's board. And oh. The position they wanted GM to pursue was greater safety, less environmental impact, more uh, kind of fuel efficient, um, um, less sort of highly stylized, more kind of fuel efficient cars. So 1970, right? Uh, Friedman comes back and says, absolutely not. The purpose of business is business, shareholders only. This this motion to get people on the shareholder was resoundly defeated. Okay, fast forward a couple of years. What did the Japanese win on in the United States? More fuel efficient. All that stuff. Cars that were better designed, that uses every single thing those community people wanted. Competitors actually came in and did. And to me, that's that's a, the fascinating lesson for business, which is what if you listen to those people? You yeah. know, what if you had more diversity on your boards and you could really say, well, maybe they've got a point, right? Um, because it ended up being, I mean, they had to be bailed out. It was a horrific yeah. 
universal. It was the whole, um, you know, as um, when I was growing up, and I'll betray my my, my cohort here. Um, but when I was growing up, the mantra was, you know, buy American cars because you can always get spare parts when they break down. Yes. And the Japanese were like, well, why would they break down? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, that problem. But that that is so fascinating because you know what really screwed GM and Ford was was we had the energy crisis, the influx of small vehicles, so that the first small vehicles, in GM's case, were the X cars uh, in 1980, and they were and they were crap. They were they were crappy. If they would have listened. In in uh, 1968, 1969, they would have had they would have had ten years, uh, ten years advance on on that, and the entire industry might be different because it was into that vacuum where they couldn't figure that out for 20, 20 years. That that's when the Japanese uh, uh, shares went uh, uh, kind of through the roof. And once you're there, uh, you know, once the Japanese had that, you know, possession is nine tenths of the law. Once they had possession of whatever by nineteen. 90 uh 120 share points or something uh, it's super hard to get get those 20 share points back well, and yeah. of course they never had yeah and i mean i think um your point about human versus inhuman is so much of our design of systems and uh, there was a question in the chat about citizens united which i'll be interested in asking but so much of our design of systems is on this bedrock of economic man you know yes and what we've painfully learned over so many years it's it these are inhuman systems the economic man does not behave the way humans i mean we and we've known this since the time of jim march i mean we satisfy so we shortcut we we t take problems as well it was the garbage can model you know we i mean there's all this stuff that comes to us that has already been studied and jeff pfeffer makes this point very well he says it's not that we don't know this it's that for whatever reason we don't want to act on it and one of the things i think that's problematic and i think citizens united is part of that whole gestalt is somebody somewhere said, I've got it, you know, if we allow activist investors, you know, in a short run, I can make this, that, this, that, this, that, just personally for me on an individual basis, we don't look at, well, what does that mean for the whole system in which we're operating? And so we have this, to me, kind of calamity where the individually, and, and, um, and people have written about capital market myopia, and they've written about the tragedy of the commons where individually compelling decisions lead up to a, yeah, a big bust. catastrophe for the whole. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely, absolutely right. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, one of, and this is one of the things I then talk about in the book, which is we set ourselves up for that. So, so because the way we legislate is now, especially in Washington, it's like you, you fight, 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 battle, 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 listen to all the lobbyists, fight, 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 to get it to the floor, to finally get it voted on. And you want to make it, want to make it perfect. So you try to get perfection and then you want to make it permanent. Mm -hmm. And this is just perfect for all the gamers Yeah. and say it took you know, eight years to get that through Congress. And, and now it's going to be this way for 50 years. Uh, and so I can now game the hell out of, out of it. Here's where I like, even though there's a bunch of things that I don't like about the NFL, I like about the NFL, right? The National Football League. They have a comp uh, competition committee that meets after every season and tweaks the system, make sure that essentially they don't say this specifically, but essentially that offense and defense are in balance because that's what makes a good game. If offense or defense dominates completely, it ceases to be a, a, a good game, any game. And, and so, so they're just 
they're just sort of bloody minded about it and they're not moral about it. When, you know, when, when Bill Walsh, the legendary Bill Walsh invented the West Coast uh, offense, they said after a couple of Super Bowls, uh, okay, Bill, that was clever, but we're going to shut you down. And they just like tweaked the rules to make his offense work less, less uh, uh, effectively. Um, and uh, they didn't, they didn't sue him. They didn't, didn't put, throw him in jail. They just said, we're going to tweak the rules because we have a greater interest, which is the game. You want to win. You've just got, you've won a couple of super, super bowls improbably with a, with a, what was a crummy, crummy team. That's enough. We're now, now changing. I think we should do that with every piece of legislation. Mm. We, should, we should recognize that we're going to have to tweak it and tweak it and tweak it because then the gamers won't jump all over it because it's not worth gaming a system, investing in gaming a system that they're just going to tweak on you uh, kind of right after it. So again, there, there are ways to handle a whole bunch of the phenomenon that, that we, we see. We just, have to, we just have to have that decision to say we can and will uh, yeah, kind of take care of this system in a more kind of thorough mm. and responsible way. I I like gardening, you use the example of gardening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is, it is. It is so I'm conscious that we're really at time. Um, yeah. So a couple of, um, and in the book you talk about, like don't think you have to boil the ocean, right? You can start with doing a few things as citizens, as parents, as educators. Um, where, where would you leave our audience with some suggestions along those lines? Yeah, well, you're, everybody in the audience is a, it is, is a citizen. And one of the things that every citizen can do is multi-home, right? So with the rise of the giants, the new monopolists that are bigger and more powerful than any monopolist we've had before, we're feeding them when we say, we love Amazon and I'm gonna order everything off of Amazon Prime. I'm not like against Amazon, but I'd say, make sure you spread your purchases around or you will be contributing to Amazon's domination. And the sad thing about monopolies, and you can see it in Amazon already, Amazon on the way up, never put their own searches for their own products ahead of the number one, number one search. They never screwed around with the, with, the, with the search algorithm. They are now, why? Because we've given that uh, capacity to them. Instead, buy 50% of your stuff from a Amazon and, and you know, some from your local store, some from a chain store, some from some other online, uh, online dealer, just multi-home everywhere, Facebook. Sure, if you want your newsfeed from Facebook, subscribe to a local newspaper. We've just got to not have our own purchases drive the monopolization of our, of our world and this extreme tale, uh, tale of the, uh, the distribution. So that would be one one thing I'd leave people. That's fantastic. So we can do that. Anybody here could do Anybody that. Anybody here can do that. And do you are you are you hopeful now that we seem to be moving to a, a new perspective anyway on what the balance between interests in society should be, at least here in the U.S. Um, you know, to, to to be honest, to be honest, no. Now this may be an unpopular uh, popular answer, but I like if you look back over the last fifty years, right? It's been control of the Congress, 30 years, Democrats, 20 years, Republicans, control of the presidency, 30, 30 years, Republicans, 20 years, Democrats. This is not the, the, the book is apolitical because both parties have bought into the machine uh, uh, metaphor. They do it a little bit differently, but they've both bought into it. So I, I, I can't. So no, I'm not. I'm not suddenly in, 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 in encouraged on on that that front. There are other things about about 
that, that I would, would say I'm encouraged about. But in, the, in terms of this core thing, I, I, I'm not sure, right? The, you know, kind of the Washington consensus, efficiency, all of that, all of that stuff was as much Democrat as, as, uh, as Republican. So I'm taking much more of a wait, wait and see uh, on this to see if there are signs that, that it did. I, I actually think that, that I'd, I'd count on citizens and business, uh, businesses to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, go as uh, uh, early. Uh, and I hope then the politicians uh, kind of listen and start to rethink some of their, uh, their theories. So let's uh, finish with the example of the stone crab place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I just... so, so yeah, if, if, if anybody's uh, ever in, in Miami, try and get a reservation at Joe Stone Crabs. It's, uh, it's this wonderful restaurant. that's the single top grossing uh, independent restaurant, like single re restaurant as opposed to chain in, in all of America. It's been around for, for over a hundred years and, uh, uh, and it is run sort of against the, the, all the norms of, of efficiency. They, uh, uh, they, they pay their staff more than they need to pay them. They pay their, their, their suppliers more than they uh, uh, need to, need to, uh, to pay them. They, you know, uh, the, they've been owned by a family for, for now uh, four generations. Their employees tend to stay 10 plus years in an industry that has 70% uh, uh, turnover. They care about having menu items on the menu that allow that allow people of modest incomes to eat, along with the people who are ordering very expensive uh, uh, stone uh, stone crab uh, claws. Uh, and and it's a it's a manifestation of a family that thinks of it as being part of a complex uh, adaptive system and did things long before, you know, in, in the terrible old days, uh, a black person was not allowed uh, on Miami beach uh, at night. It was just horrible. And so uh, the founder of Joe's Stone Crabs literally drove all, all of his African-American employees home at, 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 at night uh, because he said, it's not fair that we can't have any black employees because they, they could not come and work here because they get arrested after they, uh, uh, on, on, the way, on, the, on the way home. So, you know, you can always carve out your own way. You can be human. Uh, you can be reflective of the way the world, the, the way the world really works. And in this case, is that a trade-off? What other hundred-plus-year-old restaurants that are number one in the country in in in, uh, in in revenues? Do you know? Did this make make it tough for them to do business? No, it made them magnificent and so everybody everybody can do it Every, everybody can do it we just hold ourselves back with these with these flawed inhuman uh models that's a wonderful thought to finish with uh roger i'm so pleased i could spend all day with you but thank you so much for spending an hour congratulations on the book i hear it's doing really really well just for those of you that haven't seen it yet when more is not better overcoming america's obsession with economic efficiency uh, thank you all. Um, see you next week. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Rita. It was a pleasure.